Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here today. And I got to start out by thanking you for all of the, the cards, the messages, the texts, um, the phone calls uh, as my family's grieving the loss of my dad. Yeah, he taught me a lot of things, and I was just sitting there thinking that something he, one of his taglines was, if you hoot with the owls, you can't soar with the eagles. And he said that just about every Sunday morning, if he looked at the teenagers and thought they were dragging a little bit, thought they'd been up too late, he'd, he'd stop and say, look, if you hoot with the owls, you can't soar with us eagles. He loved to say that, so... In any case, I hope that's helpful to you, maybe as an encouragement, not to stay up as late. It never worked for me, but God bless him, he tried. So yeah, thank you all for your prayers and your, your well wishes. I also want to um, make one more announcement. This Thursday at 7 p.m., uh, I'm going to start doing the Theology Thursdays again. We did that in the spring. Uh, I think that was a lot of interest to folks. We're going to do it again this fall, again, starting this Thursday at 7, and we're going to be going through what we believe about the Bible. Everybody's going to get one of these notebooks, and we're going to go through this. And if you've ever been curious about what we mean about the Bible being inspired or inerrant, or even what we mean about uh, having the full canon of the Bible, how do we get the books we have? How do we know that the books we have are the ones they intended us to have? How do we know that the Bible we have is the one that they wrote? That's what we'll be talking about uh, this coming Thursday and for about 10 weeks at 7 p.m. There will be child care. We'll be doing it here in the auditorium. Hope you can make it to that. Got a lot going on this fall. So I want to start out telling you about an article that came out in the Washington Post. And it was titled, I'm an atheist, so why can't I shake God? And it suggests that it's hard to believe in nothing when your brain is wired for faith. The author was a woman named Elizabeth King. She talks about how she abandoned her childhood faith for atheism. She said, until my mid-teens, I was a born-again Christian who loved God with all her heart. She said, these days, though, I'm an atheist with nothing to prove. She said, the story of my departure from the church resembles those of many others who have abandoned the flock. She said, when I was about 16, I started asking questions during services that my youth pastors couldn't or didn't want to answer, like, why is it a sin to be gay? Why is it okay to spank children? She says, where does the Bible say we can't have marital, premarital sex? She said, still in spite of her atheism, that somehow, by the way, I think the scripture is very clear on all those things, but she said, somehow God has found a way to stick around in my mind. She thinks that God's lingering presence could be attributed to the inner workings of the human mind that she battles hard against. And she claims, if I could, I would banish this figure from my psyche, I would. But then she admits that in the end, I have no choice but to accept that I'm an atheist with what she calls a sense for God. Now that's a familiar story. I don't believe people lose their salvation. However, I'd offer one correction to what she said. But she walked away indicating that she'd really never believed it to begin with. I could relate to this story because when I was about 16, I did something similar to her. I wasn't necessarily getting the answers that I was looking for in Christianity. As a matter of fact, sometimes I was scolded for the questions that I was asking 
being told I was too inquisitive or I shouldn't be asking those questions to begin with. I went to a church where the pastor was older, and just about every service was like the last night of a revival service. It was fiery, it was, it was brimstony, it was passionate, but it wasn't really teaching me, and I wasn't sure where I could go for answers. I'm thankful for the emphasis that church had on conversion, by the way. A lot of Christians came out of that church. But I'm reminded that we're called to be disciples, and to be a disciple, it's not just a matter of the heart, but it's a matter of the heart and the mind. There is an emotional sense in which we love Christ, but we also have to have a real sense of who He is. If we don't seek understanding, we're going to end up loving someone or even something that maybe doesn't even exist. And that can lead to this disillusionment, I believe, that this woman was struggling with and that I was struggling with at the time, for a time. So I want to ask the question this morning, well, how do I love Christ with my heart and my mind? How can we do both? Because if we don't, we will be disillusioned with who he is, for that matter, with who God is. So it's a two-pronged approach. If we're going to profess to love God, it can't just be a heart matter. It's also got to be a matter of the mind. That's what we see happening here in the book and gospel of John. I want to continue on with John chapter 1 this morning. I want to start with verse 19 and read down through verse 34 of John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He says, I am the voice of one crying out of the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You may be seated. We're continuing on this morning with a message from the Gospel of John. 
I started this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to thank Kevin so much for stepping in and, and preaching uh, this past Sunday. I'll be referencing that sermon a bit today, as a matter of fact. Uh, but we're walking through the Gospel of John. Most of the Gospels have a focus. The book of Matthew, for instance, it was written to the Jews. Mark focused on ministry. Luke was written to the Gentiles. They tell a very similar story. But then we get to this unique Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John takes a different turn. It's focusing on the depths of who Christ is for the purpose of people believing in who he is. And the reason we have an eagle up there is because that gospel through history was symbolized by an eagle because it was considered to have such lofty ideas contained in it about Christ himself. So this morning, I want to talk about this buzz, and there's this sense of excitement going on in chapter 1 among these very first people who were starting to see Christ as he was beginning his ministry. We saw it there with John the Baptist. We're going to continue through the rest of that chapter, as a matter of fact, this morning. I want to approach our subject this way, talk about loving Christ with our heart and mind, because we see these examples in chapter 1. First, we see John the Baptist. And with him, we see humility before Christ. You consider these three ingredients, by the way, three essential ingredients to loving Christ with your heart and mind. One would be this humility we see in John the Baptist. Then we see a curiosity among two of his disciples. And then finally, we see Philip and Nathaniel with this excitement about Christ. So these three essential ingredients we're going to talk about this morning as we love Christ with our heart and with our mind. So, what about these guys that are talking to John the Baptist? There's a, gr a group of priests uh, had approached John the Baptist, and they've got a curiosity. Uh, they're trying to figure out what this stir is all about. Uh, no doubt this guy, John the Baptist, why is he baptizing? Who's following him? Why are they following him? And just who is John? So this religious emissary approaches him. We saw it there in, in chapter 1, these Levites, these sent by these Pharisees. And interestingly, the first thing John does is denies that he's Christ. So there must have been some question. Now, these Jews had a view of the end times, much like we have a view of the end times and how this whole thing's going to finish. So didn't these folks. And they were expecting someone. And through the late Old Testament period and into the time between the, the, the Testaments, hope in a coming Messiah was widespread, not unlike it is now. They were waiting for him. They were, some were looking for him. This would be lo the Lord's anointed, someone filled with God's power and his spirit, who was going to work out some kind of saving miracle on behalf of the people. But they didn't have as much information as we did on who this Messiah was going to be, what this was going to look like. They thought it would be something like a Moses. Remember Moses. He led the people to freedom. He led them out of Egypt. A political kind of freedom, a military kind of freedom. And that was their, their ideal messianic model. They had undergone Greek and Roman occupation right there where they lived. And they wanted saved from it. So they were looking at this sort of political kind of redemption that they had from, from Egypt. So for 300 years, these people had lived under the occupation of these foreign invaders. They wanted a Messiah and a Christ. 
But those terms were filled with all kinds of political connotations. So they asked, well, are you Elijah? Elijah was one of the two prophets in the Old Testament who didn't, didn't die. Enoch and Elijah just sort of walked off with God. And they were expecting an Elijah figure. In the book of Malachi, it taught that Elijah would precede the coming of the day of the Lord. John said, nope, not Elijah. Well, what about the prophet in the book of Deuteronomy? In chapter 18, it said a prophet like Moses would return. And John said, nope, not him either. It's like, well, who are you? So he explains it to them. He's giving them the right category of who he is. And there's the big reveal in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's now simply bearing witness to who Christ is. Much in the same way someone may argue in a courtroom convincing the jury of the truth of the matter. This is what John is now doing, convincing people of who Christ is and the reader of the Gospel of John. He's one who will take away the sins of the world. Then he describes his own relationship to Jesus in verses 26 and 27. He says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now what's going on here? So this baptism was sort of different. John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance because what was going to be made clear to these Jews was that you were not going to get into heaven, into God's kingdom, simply by your bloodline. That's not how this was going to work. Your lineage won't get you there. You're going to have to come to saving faith in this one who is coming, Jesus Christ. And then he says this line, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, whenever we go through these Gospels, there was a lot that the original audience understood that we have to understand to see what's really happening here. Now, at that time, if you were someone's pupil, if someone was your teacher, you would do anything for the teacher. What they said went, except you would not remove their shoes. That was something that the student didn't do with the teacher. That was the job of the slave. The slave would remove the shoes of the master. Now, what's John saying here? He said, look, I'm not worthy to be his student. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He said, this is the one who is coming, and he is altogether different than anyone who's ever been here before. And because he gets who Jesus is, He's got this tremendous sense of humility before Christ. And, that, and this humility, is, it's a deep understanding of who, who God is and who we are. And there's a joy and a hope and a freedom to be found in this kind of humility that we're witnessing here. I, I love what uh, C.S. Lewis talks about mere Christianity. He makes this brilliant observation about gospel humility. This very end of this chapter on pride, he, he said that if we were to meet a truly humble person, he said we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. He said, they, and also they would not be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. He goes on to say this, 
The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. See, that's what... See, John the Baptist gets it. And there's a tremendous freedom in this, this kind of thinking. This gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. As a matter of fact, I stopped thinking about myself. There's a wonderful little book about self-forgetfulness that Keller has written that's I highly recommend it. It's very good. There's a joy that comes with that. There's a blessed rest in self-forgetfulness. And can you see here the hope already that Christ is bringing? John the Baptist has a wonderful freedom that we can have in this self-abandonment. John the Baptist continues to testify about Christ. Again, it's like in a courtroom. He identifies with Christ. He calls him the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The audience would have gotten that. A sacrifice. He explains that he saw Christ receive the Holy Spirit and the Spirit remains in him. And in doing so, he's driving his disciples towards Jesus Christ and away from himself. He's like, my time's coming to an end. And it's time to follow Christ, the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So there's a sense of humility that comes with a deeper understanding, intellectually and on a heart level of who Christ is. And I want to turn our attention now to these disciples of John the Baptist because we see this, this growing excitement and curiosity about Jesus. And Christ, again, he's passed by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist has two of his disciples standing nearby. Again, he identifies him. He said, here's the Lamb of God. And then look at verses 37 through 39. It says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So these guys, they're like stalking Jesus, right? So they, they hear about him. They see that this one, John the Baptist, who they've been following, is now saying, here's the Lamb of God, and they're saying, this guy deserves our attention. Who is he? And Jesus asked them a question, finally, said, what are you seeking? Now, does he know what they're seeking? Yes! I love it when Jesus asks questions, because it's not because he needs the information. He's drawing them in. And note this close connection between the followers of John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus. Because many of Jesus' first disciples were originally disciples of John the Baptist. But they're seekers. The question is, well, what are they seeking? Well, they want more, and I don't even think they can totally explain what it is they're wanting right now. They want more of something. They know he's it on some level. And we see very, two very important aspects of discipleship. When asked, where are you say, staying? What did Jesus say? Come and you will see. 
and they stayed. That's the invitation that comes to disciples of Jesus Christ. Come and see and remain. They've had a personal experience of him. Someone they trusted, John the Baptist, said, there's the one you need to get to know. And one of the striking features in this story throughout this chapter is people that become disciples of Jesus, they know what to call him. And you have a whole litany of names for Christ. You don't have an index of names for Christ anywhere else in the New Testament like you do here in John chapter 1. And just look at these names. He's Messiah. This is all in John chapter 1. He's the Messiah, the prophet. He's Jesus, the Lamb of God, one who baptizes with the Spirit, the chosen Son of God. He's rabbi, teacher, Christ anointed one, son of Joseph, Nazarene, son of God, king of Israel, son of man. All titles for one man, fully God, walking here among them. Why do we get this litany of names? It's interesting that even in in such an early time, you get this comprehensive list. These followers already have a semi, at least they've got somewhat of an accurate appraisal of who Christ is, who they're following, who they're checking out. They understood that phrase, Lamb of God, again, that he was meant to be the Messiah, the chosen one, the one whom they had been looking for for millennia. He'd come, this first coming of Christ. They're getting it with their hearts, and they're getting it with their minds. That's part of knowing and loving Christ. When we say we believe in Jesus... When we use that kind of language, it's important that we know who we're saying that we believe in. Why? Now, just imagine for a moment that that I start talking about my wife, Melissa, the one whom I love and I adore, the one I get to spend my life with. I keep going on about how I love her so much, I love her so much. And then you come up to me and say, Chad, where did Melissa go to college? I, I don't know. Um, well, when's her birthday? Eh, it beats me. Um, do you know her hometown? Eh, not particularly. But I love her so much. I just don't know anything about her. You know, she'll start to tell me, and I just, no, 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 honey, please. I, no, thank you. Now, would you really believe that I loved her? No, you wouldn't, because if you profess to love someone, you profess to know them. You want to get to know them. You want to know about them. This is what it means to love Christ with our minds as well as our hearts. Christianity is not primarily about feeling. It does involve feeling. It does involve experience, but it's not divorced from our brains. That phrase, be still and know that I am God, does not mean shut off your brain. Don't do that. Jesus offers more than we can take in. Love, hope, joy, not easy times. These people around Christ are getting it. Most of them will be martyred for their faith. But they were willing to do what? To come and see. That's such an important phrase in this chapter, come and see. Then we get to these final two disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. And we read here about uh, Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus simply said to Philip, follow me. I love the variety of ways Christ calls these disciples. He says, just follow me. And the excitement is getting down on the heart level. Because when these guys are called, they can't keep it to themselves. He was so excited, he couldn't wait to tell 
people who he'd met. He goes and he tells Nathaniel, by the way, a foundational principle of Christianity is that you will tell people who love and trust you who Jesus is. This is the engagement that has continued this process of evangelism, discipleship, that you will tell people about Christ and make new disciples in the process. Look at verses 45 to 49. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and the prophets also wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael replied, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip replied, What does he say? Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and exclaimed, Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? Jesus replied, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He got it. He gets this fulfillment of the Old Testament. He can't wait. Philip gets it. He can't wait to tell Nathanael. By the way, that you, you don't see Nathanael typically in a list of disciples. Uh, he's often called Bartholomew, which simply means uh, son of Tholomew. It's a, an Aramaic phrase. Nathaniel's probably his first name. And then, and then he slams Nazareth. He's prejudiced against Nazareth and the Nazarenes. It's kind of like the way West Virginians felt about Ohio. You know, couldn't drive as well as we did. Found out the way the rest of the United States feels about West Virginia. There was some competitive sense. Nathaniel was from Cana, it's a village north of Nazareth. Talks about this rivalry. We see a little bit of the rivalry between these two towns. And Nazareth didn't necessarily have a bad reputation in Jesus' day. It was just this, this rivalry these people had. But then how did he reply? We see the phrase again. Philip said, come and see. Now, Nathaniel may have been blunt in this criticism of Nazareth, but what? He pushes through his prejudice. And he goes, and he, without any treacherous motives, he's willing to examine for himself these claims being made about Jesus. And Jesus supernaturally reveals himself. He said, I saw you. I saw you before your friend ever talked to you. You were sitting under that fig tree. I don't, we don't know why he was sitting under the fig tree, but he was hanging out under a fig tree. He said, I saw you. And Jesus sees you in his own supernatural way. He sees everything about you. He knows your sinful past. He knows the stuff you're doing wrong. He knows the stuff you're doing right. He knows the things that make you cry when nobody else is looking. Jesus sees you. And what does he say? He says, come and see me. Come and see me. I'm not going to hold any of that against you. I'm going to treat you differently than anybody's ever treated you before. I'm going to give you a hope that you are desperately looking for. And these guys are so excited, they can't keep it to themselves. They're having an experience. It's one that I hope every single person comes to an experience of Christ when they come into First Baptist Church. Because, see, the body of Christ, we are here to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So if people are coming to First Baptist Church and they are not experiencing Christ, not experiencing that love, we're screwing up, aren't we? Because, see, I would like to envision that I see a church that when anyone comes in here, they come in here and they are met and they are welcomed and they are loved and they are known. And I know it gets scary if this has been the first time you've been to church in a while. You, you, I know you just kind of sometimes just want to sneak in and you don't want to be known. I'm sorry, that's just not the church we are. 
We, we desire to know you. We desire for you to be known. Because you've got something to contribute to this local body, this manifestation of Jesus Christ here in the community of Sheridan, Wyoming. So they're getting it. We still come and see Christ. We see him in the scriptures. We experience the love of Christ from our brothers and sisters. That's the function of the church. A little sense of kingdom living right now. We are unified by the Holy Spirit beyond anything going on in our world or culture. Can I get an amen? Amen. Beyond anything going on in our world and culture, we are unified by the Spirit of God. That's why Kevin's message was so important last week. We should be known by what? John's going to say it later on in John chapter 13. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. It's about what we're for. We're for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're for each other. That's what we're for. It's my prayer that we are people full of love and excitement for God. Putting this all together, come and see Christ with humility, curiosity, and excitement about him. Come and see him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray now, we are going into a very special time of communion. And we still come and see you, Lord. We come and see you through this act, this way, this special way you told us to remember what you've done, to partake in a, a meal together, to love each other. We thank you, Jesus, for making yourself known. Lord, you revealed yourself to us as the lamb that came to take away the sin of the world, the king of the universe the reconciler between God and man, the Messiah, the anointed one. Prepare our hearts now as we go into this time of communion. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.